Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I had managed in my high school years to completely disassociate from any sense of my own sexuality. That's Lisa Diamond, a psychologist at the University of Utah. I had no awareness of any... Like, I had sexual desire, but it was like, it wasn't for people. You know, it's like, I found sexuality very threatening. And I had a boyfriend, and I had many years of really unsatisfying and physically painful sex because I just wasn't aroused. And I just remember being like, oh, well, I guess I'm not into sex. It like did not cross my mind that there was anything other than heterosexuality. I I knew it existed, but it was like, oh, no, that, that doesn't seem to apply to me. And it wasn't until I got to college. It was like literally the day I got to college and I was immediately like so crushed out on my first roommate who was like my best friend and I'm like wait a second that's desire I'm feeling desire and it was a surprise to me so it sort of hit me like a Mack truck you know as soon as I was in a different environment that made it a little bit safer. Lisa's revelation eventually turned into a research question in her own mind. I think a lot of women in this culture internalize a disassociation a disattention to desire. People would talk to me, they'd be like, well, you must have been attracted to girls and you didn't know it. I'm like, no, you don't understand. And I think boys have an easier access psychologically to their own eroticism because they can see their own arousal. They can physically see it on their body. I think it's much easier for girls to disconnect and to not call attention to it. Lisa went on to work in the field of gender studies, and same-sex attraction. Once I realized just how much we didn't understand yet, well, then that's really exciting. She isn't the only one. I grew up in a very conservative family and a very conservative environment. And in the 10th grade was sort of the peak of when I was wondering about my own sexuality. And I've always loved science and always loved biology. Robbie Weedo is a sociologist, data scientist and geneticist at Purdue University and Indiana University. And for some reason, in my poor rural Indiana town, there was a genetics class. I don't know why that existed in my high school, but it did. And in that class was the first time I started to wonder about the biological components of my sexuality. I felt like something was different about me, especially because I didn't feel like it was something that I had chosen and that was a little bit beyond my control. Robbie became part of the first group of researchers to characterise which parts of the genome affect same-sex behaviour and to what extent. I was never totally comfortable with my sexual self and body until grad school, which is when I started to actually have sex and feel comfortable being a sexual gay man. So it's been a question that is very personal to me. 
and one that I've been interested in a long time. And it was kind of crazy that all of this came together to allow me to work on this project. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist Science and Technology Editor. Today we'll explore the biological and evolutionary factors that could be at play when someone is attracted to someone else of the same sex. Genetics and environment are all involved, of course, and the research can sometimes get controversial. But we'll meet the people applying scientific rigour to these intriguing questions about human behaviour. Joining me for today's show is our science correspondent, Abby Bertix. Hi, Abby. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alec. Abby, tell me what got you interested in this question of the science of same-sex attraction? I think it's fascinating, scientifically speaking. There's this Darwinian paradox, as the scientists say, in that same-sex behavior is found in every major geographic region and every major animal group. But it doesn't really make sense, like evolutionarily speaking. Like if you think about it, gay animals or gay humans don't really make babies. And the whole goal of natural selection is to make creatures which propagate and pass on their genes. So trying to kind of figure out what purpose there is to gayness from this like natural selection lens is really interesting. So it, it definitely exists. We, we know it exists everywhere. But why? Now, the research into same-sex behaviour has been going on for a long time, especially in animal populations. There are lots and lots of examples of this. Just take me through some of them. Um, yeah, so dolphins, bison, vultures, elephants, giraffes, penguins, I believe, they were first observed to engage in homosexual behaviour, as they called it at the time, in 1911. And this was actually kind of an interesting and contentious story in that the guy who first documented it described it as, like, quote-unquote, depraved. And he wrote part of the report in Greek letters to kind of prevent this knowledge from becoming more widely known. So that it was it was a secret for only other other scientists at the time or something? Yeah, because I, I think he just didn't want people to know and it wasn't accepted that same-sex behavior is exceedingly natural. There were, in 1998, there's a great quote here, two vultures engaged in, quote, open and energetic sex in a zoo, and they built a nest together. But there are lots of animal species. Bonobos are a really common example. I think like 60% of all bonobo sexual activity, these are apes, it occurs between two or more females with no male bonobos involved. I think the bonobos are, are, are quite famous for their sexual activity, never mind which sex uh, is involved with which other sex. Yes, they are quite prolific in that sense. There are also rams. I think 10% of male sheep refuse to mate with female sheep. Um, it, it, like The list goes on and on. Whatever the species, whatever the island, whatever the area they live in, there's bound to be a little bit of not necessarily male-female sexual behavior. So, Abby, how are scientists nowadays trying to figure out the, uh, the biological underpinnings of same-sex attraction in people? So this research has been going on for many years. Some of it is more nefarious. Some of it is more well-intentioned. In the 90s, there's this giant quest to try to find the gay gene, to kind of find a gene or a set like in your DNA that would make you gay or make you not gay. And obviously, this has some kind of eugenics side effects that you have to be really wary of. I think a lot of the scientists are just really excited about trying to understand 
what is a really, really complex behavior. Same-sex attraction is, it's a complex behavior just like many other behaviors that humans have. It's a result of genetics, it's a result of the environment, and probably other things as well. So they're just trying to untangle this really complicated knot and try to understand how everything is raveled and spooled the way that it is. It's incredible, isn't it, that anyone, never mind scientists, thought, you know, a few decades ago that there was a single gene for something so complicated, especially given that there isn't a single gene for almost anything in the human physical traits or behavioural traits whatsoever. But I guess that's just the story of genetics, isn't it? The sort of the understanding that genetics is much more complicated, environment is much more complicated. Okay, well, so it sounds like there are lots of scientific avenues one might pursue to try and understand bits of these behaviours. So that's what you've been investigating for the show, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. We've kind of identified this natural phenomenon, and the scientists are using the scientific method experiments trying to figure out why same-sex behavior exists. So what we're trying to figure out about sexual orientation is, purely from a scientific interest point of view, is, is why is it that the majority of people are attracted to opposite sex partners, but that a, a very stable minority of people are consistently attracted to same-sex partners. Kazi Rahman is a psychologist at King's College London. Given that for evolutionary reasons, exclusive homosexuality results in very little direct reproduction. So how would genes for homosexuality be maintained in the population? Why don't they just, you know, get pushed out over time? Kazi is one of the researchers that's trying to understand why this Darwinian paradox exists. And while the question is clear, the answer still isn't. One thing that became quickly apparent to me was that there's a distinct lack of consensus among the people who are studying it on what the relevant hypotheses are. They can't even seem to agree on the basic definitions. Different disciplines disagree slightly. So behavioural scientists, psychologists in particular, were of the view that sexual orientation is more like a, um, an either-or phenomenon. So most people are heterosexual and a significant minority are non-heterosexual and that, in fact, there's very little variation in between. Where we disagree is uh, some of the behavioural ecologists, even the biologists have talked about how there's more of a distribution. Somewhere in between there, there's also a group which says it's not that it's a debate between there's, there's a spectrum or there's not. It's that there are subgroups in between. So the heterosexuals, the bisexuals, and then the homosexuals, gay and lesbian people. So there's at least three groups. So, yeah, there's perhaps more disagreement than there is agreement. Why does it matter to understand this on a biological and a genetic basis? Yeah, that's the ultimate question. Why does it matter? So firstly, understanding the origins of a trait is just purely interesting from a scientific point of view. The other issue is, is that understanding the origins of sexual orientation might inform our understanding of other differences between people, most notably the differences between men and women generally. What we've worked on and what we found not just at the cognitive level but partly also at the neural level when we look at the living brain is that certain regions of the brains of gay men are very similar to those of heterosexual women. Their pattern of performance on particular kinds of cognitive tests like spatial tests and verbal tests is also very similar. We don't get that pattern with lesbian women and straight men as strongly. That's also important then when we think about the relevance to health. So the findings on the fact that there are sexual orientation differences and there might be important in relation to understanding cognitive decline then in non-heterosexual people. And then understanding the origins of sexual orientation might explain some of the health disparities that we've seen. And, you know, if we can identify purely environmental 
correlates of the association between sexual orientation and psychopathology or mental health problems, that allows us to tailor our interventions to those particular modifiable targets. Like pretty much all research that involves genetics, some of it is controversial. I think people worry that, you know, we're we're sounding like we want to find out about the genetics of sexual orientation because we want to do something to gay people. You know, I think some of the worries around why we're doing what we're doing can be reduced, I think, if you understand that lots of people are in it for just understanding. The most obvious place to start investigating a trait is to start by looking at the genes. Despite a 1993 study which controversially found a region of the human genome linked to male homosexuality, the findings have never been replicated. There's no such thing as a gay gene that fully determines sexual attraction. Some of the first evidence to go against this gay gene hypothesis were studies in identical twins. Twin studies essentially found that twins who share all of their genes might not always be attracted to the same sex, which means that it's not 100% written in your genes what your sexuality will be. Nowadays, when we start to re-examine this twin study using sort of molecular genetics model where we actually measure DNA. Andrea Ghana is an associate professor in health data science at the University of Helsinki. And we then start to estimate how much there is a genetic component in these traits, we normally see that the genetic components tend to be much lower than what was originally studied by uh, these twin studies. Researchers like Andrea are doing something called genome-wide association studies. What these do is they try to look at specific genetic variants or changes in your genetic code, and they try to associate these with a trait or behavior. So in this case, same-sex behavior. And these genome-wide association studies, they don't provide causal relationships. It's not saying this mutation causes this. What it's doing is it looks at a lot of these mutations at once, a lot of these genetic variants at once, and it kind of finds associations. Robbie Wido, who we heard from earlier, worked with Andrea on this genome study and told me more. We just did a very standard type of essentially scan across the human genome to find places highly associated with an outcome. There was nothing really spectacular about it. The only spectacular part is that there hadn't been data assembled at this scale to do the study. You know, actually, one of the the reasons that we did the paper, we wanted to make this behavior feel like a normal behavior, just like any other human behavior, because, you know, that's, that's what it is. And what did you find out? We find out that there are certain genetic variants associated with same-sex sexual behavior. But I guess the main message here is that there's not a smoking gun, there's not like a clear, very strong signal. There are many signals spread across the genome, what we call sort of polygenic, meaning many genes together. They have all small effect on resulting in this very complex behavior. And probably there are many different biological pathways that are slightly impacted by the genetic signal. Andrea's 2019 study looked at nearly half a million people. They were asked, have you ever had sex with someone of the same sex? And they looked at the participants' DNA, and what they're doing is they're trying to correlate tiny changes in the genetic code to a propensity for same-sex behavior in the participants. And they found a few of them. But each of these variations, these little changes in the genetic code alone, 
didn't really mean much. There wasn't kind of one gay gene at all. But together, all of these genetic markers would seem to add up and have an impact. The study concluded that the information in our genes and passed between generations can only explain 8 to 25% of same-sex behavior. But they also found that the genetic variants for men who engaged in same-sex behavior were correlated, but not completely correlated with those of women who engaged in same-sex behavior. So genetically speaking, male same-sex attraction, men liking men, and female same-sex attraction, women liking women, look to be slightly different. Robbie Wido told me about this so-called genetic correlation, or lack thereof, between men and women. We found a really low genetic correlation. One of the lowest that comes to mind for me for any complex human behavior. And so basically, what I think that genetic correlation is beginning to show evidence towards is that what it means to engage in same-sex sexual behavior is very different for men and for women. Robbie and Andrea's study was branded as a breakthrough by the media, but they're very keen to point out its limitations. There's been discussion in the framing of the population that we are including, the fact that most of the population come from the UK as a specific selected population. All this idea that, that, that there is a quantification of the genetic effect and a quantification of the environmental effect, and somehow we can distinguish between the two, it is and especially imagine something as complex as our sexuality it will depend so much about your culture. It will depend on the environment where you live. And if you're living in an environment where it's completely forbidden to have sex with someone of the same sex, then naturally the genetic component is going to be have a very small role because the environmental component is so strong. Keeping an open dialogue with members of the queer community is also important to ensure their work isn't misrepresented. We actually have involved the LGBT community in the design of the study and the interpretation of the results. Uh, we have created a frequently asked question box in the paper and uh, on the website. We actually have uh, created a video that is available on the website where we try to explain the interpretation of the findings in a way that is accessible to the lay audience. So we have spent, uh, I would say, most of the time to think about how to best communicate these results. It's a challenging topic to explore, but that doesn't mean that researchers should shy away from it. My personal view is that we cannot simply don't do this type of research at all. That's not the right way to face the problem. We need to understand better this topic, and the consensus that now the community seems to come around is that we need when we put out this article, even as scientists, try to engage in communication and being accountable for part of the reaction that the public might have at this work. So I think it is important that we continue investigating this topic in collaboration also with, for example, anthropologists and sociologists that study also the other aspects here. We still know very, very little. You feel a little bit like a politician, like you can't ever come down on either side. It's not really because you're a politician, it's because that's how the world works and that's how human behaviors work. Human behaviors, of course, are notoriously difficult to research. I wanted to take things back a step and get an idea of exactly how scientists do this and the problems that they face. Firstly, do we even know how common same-sex attraction is? That's something I put to Robbie. 
the percentage often given is about 10%. That figure, I think, has been growing a little bit over time, but it's highly contextual. And so it's also very subject to the comfort that someone feels in reporting that, given the social or societal context that they find themselves in or how comfortable they are in their family. So I have a feeling that it might be a little elevated. There's no hard evidence on that, but I would maybe put the estimate at about 15%. Is there a difference between people who identify as male, their prevalence of same-sex attraction versus women? In most societies, women feel more comfortable reporting having experienced same-sex sexual behavior, and it's less common in men. But that just has to do with norms around masculinity. So I don't think there's probably any actual differences in the numbers. These all just have to do with reporting issues and societal levels of comfort. So measuring same-sex behavior, measuring same-sex attraction, it seems like one of the major challenges that this field is reckoning with is, is how to do it. It's not just this field. It's all of the social or behavioral sciences. It's a problem that it plagues any type of social, you know, how do you measure educational attainment? How do you measure IQ? How do you measure smoking behavior in an individual? It's a big problem. It's always existed. And it it probably won't ever be solved to someone's complete satisfaction. There is no way to objectively detect attraction. Lisa Diamond, the psychologist who we heard from at the start of the podcast, agrees. We know how to detect sexual arousal. We know how to detect changes in blood flow to the genitals. We know how to detect changes in blood flow in the brain. But those are not the experience of sexual attraction. Those are indicators. And so we're studying something that limits us to asking folks to report on what they're experiencing. And we know that self-report is a troublesome measure. And the other problem that I am more aware of now is that no matter what country you're living in, no matter where on the globe you are, you've grown up in a society that probably has left you feeling a little bit shameful about your sexuality because most cultures have pretty strict rules about sexuality. So by the time you get to someone's adulthood, they have already internalized a lot of strategies and adaptations for coping with shame and embarrassment around sex. And so there are so many psychological layers standing between the individual's own experience of attraction and our ability to measure it as a researcher. It seems like there's a lot of nuance here hiding under the surface. At the beginning, you might say, okay, you're gay, you're bi, you're straight, you're ace, that's it. But is it it? Is it a continuum? Are there categories? How are researchers viewing sexual attraction, sexual orientation? Prior to the 1900s, we didn't really categorize people as sexual types. Western society, at least, viewed sexuality as something you do, not something you are. And so individuals who engaged in same-sex sex, they weren't considered to be gay people. They were like people doing certain things. And it wasn't until the 1900s when you started to see this idea of categorical distinctions between homosexual and heterosexual individuals. And then we come up with a bisexual category. And then we eventually come up with an asexual category. And then we're like, oh, maybe there's a fluid category. So 
You can either keep proliferating categories until the cows come home, or we can admit that we don't know where the categorical boundaries are. And rather than obsessing over the category, it needs to be studied as a spectrum while also respecting the fact that individuals may gravitate toward category labels that allow them to make sense of themselves. And that's an important thing. We just have to make a distinction because I don't think we know for sure whether we're doing that correctly. What I found really interesting is that in spite of kind of a more progressive take on sexual orientation, there's still a lot of terminology around male and female. How is the field grappling with a kind of spectrum of gender identity? It's been interesting. I've sort of perceived that some folks have treated this spectrum of sexual diversity and have been like, yeah, that's all true and it's a spectrum. But gender is still a binary and we can still use words like female and male comfortably. And I think there are others, including myself, who are like, wait a second, once you realize how much of a spectrum it is and how much you look and take seriously the fact that historically our whole definition of sexual diversity has required certain binary assumptions about gender, that same sex, other sex. If you're not sure what sex is what, then that way of categorizing things doesn't really make a lot of sense. Whether you view it like Lisa or not, it's really difficult and complex to do the science without making simplifications. So for now at least, it seems like the only way that researchers have been able to wrap their minds around it is by using the term same-sex attraction. We've explored genetic studies into same-sex attraction so far. So what genetic studies mean in practice is that there's only a small, but present, genetic component to same-sex attraction. Most of the factors don't come from genetics. Geneticists call this the environment. It's that interaction between genes and the environment, nature and nurture, where the current focus of the research is. When you watch those videos of like a flock of birds, and they're moving as one, but there are a bunch of different birds. Each bird is paying attention to the cues of just the birds immediately around it. If they're starting to go to the right, you start to go to the right. So every bird is just focusing on the three or four birds that are closest to them, but every bird is close to three or four other birds. And so a slight movement in one direction ends up getting magnified through the whole flock. And then they all move as one. And that's kind of how I see it. When that flock of birds kind of moves to the right, there's no one bird that's causing that. It's multi-causal, and the causes are interconnected. And small changes can have large effects when they interact with other changes happening at the same time. We'll go on to explore those other possible components and some of the hypotheses that are being investigated next. Before we go on, just a quick reminder that you can read or listen to all of our journalism and insightful analysis by subscribing to The Economist. 
Get your first month of our content for free at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. If you're already a subscriber, thank you very much. We'll be back with Abby in just a moment. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Today on Babbage, we're exploring how scientists are trying to understand same-sex attraction. To investigate the influence of genetic and environmental factors, our science correspondent, Abby Bertix, left The Economist's office in London to attend a conference organised by the Royal Society. We'll pick Abby's reporting up from there. I'm in a manor house a couple of hours outside of London, and I'm here for this conference on the genetics and evolution of sexual orientation. Behaviors are hard to understand. And I was just curious, like, what sorts of scientific hypotheses, what sorts of methods were, were being used to kind of look at this from a very science perspective. Some of the biggest characters and most prolific researchers who study sexual orientation were at this conference. But there were also students who were keen to observe the scientific process in action. My name is Gabriel Scott. I'm a second year at Imperial College London doing biochemistry. I think the kind of new wave of genome-wide association studies, which was one of the latter talks we've had, kind of really opens a lot of doors for further research and further ideas, just, just the generation of brand new ideas that no one's thought about before. So to kind of enter at this point, it's a new age for it. My name is Ophelia Fakuya and I'm a second year biology student in Imperial College. For such a topic as sexual orientation, I don't think it's fair to expect that one thing would fit and apply to everything. So I've really liked seeing how in different contexts, you know, different researchers have come up to explain how this particular hypothesis fits these aspects and maybe when you change another variable or something, it doesn't really fit so well and so now there's need for newer filling in of the gaps. I really enjoy the talks that talk about plasticity because it's like what I'm interested in. My name is Anna Drago. I'm a PhD student at the University of St Andrews. We should probably approach this by looking at a gene by environment interaction. Could you explain plasticity? It's it's a term that's thrown around a lot. It's the ability of your genes to produce different phenotypes depending on the environment that they're in. So let's say like a good example is animals that have short coats and long coats, depending on like the seasons. So their genes don't change, right? Their DNA is the same throughout their lives, but depending on environmental inputs, the expression and the regulation of those genes can change to adapt to those environmental changes. But what could those environmental changes in humans actually be? That's something I asked Lisa Diamond. Cutting the pie very broadly. 
combining all non-heterosexuality into one category. The heritability is 30%, which means that 70% is non-genetic. So 30% of variance being genetic is definitely statistically significant. It definitely means there's a genetic component. That's really exciting. Aren't we interested at all in the 70%? Since when did we find 70% of variance in anything uninteresting? You know, I sort of like was in the shower and I'm like, 70 percent's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, that is a lot. When we hear the word environment, we think about parents. From the perspective of behavioral genetics, the environment is simply everything that isn't a gene. So it's the fetal environment. It's the mother's biology. It's the sound in the room when you were born. It's whatever. We don't know. A popular pseudoscientific theory that's been cited for decades is that same-sex attraction has something to do with complex family relationships, like having an absent father. Is there any truth to that? We have some pretty good evidence that parenting styles are not what we're talking about. Like, you know, we can rule out. Because for a while, people were looking at, was it distant fathers? Those influences are too late in development. Most of human neural brain plasticity is active in the first year to five years of life. And we know that human brains are born pretty undeveloped. We go through a lot of brain change in the first year and in the first five years. And then the plasticity goes down and down and the brain kind of finishes developing around age 25. So Lisa is looking for things that happen really early on in life that could tweak the brain and be associated with same-sex attraction later on. My hunch is that the environmental influences that are responsible are things that maybe we can't even detect that are happening in the first six months. One of the likely candidates is just the amount of stress in the environment partly because we know during the first year of life, the baby is basically crying, being soothed, eating, and just trying to sort of make sense of its world. And so regularity is an influence on the child's nervous system. And we know that children who are raised in unpredictable environments, their stress systems get sort of extra sensitized as if the brain is saying, wow, we can't really predict what's happening. So be alert, wake up. And I wonder whether some of those unpredictability-related changes in the first year of life might kind of open up and sensitize the sort of sexual system in the same way that they sensitize the stress response system. I think some people might kind of misconstrue that as implying that being gay is, is wrong. How do you reckon with that? I think one helpful thing to remember is that stress and adversity was normative for the human species. There have never been any humans as privileged as we are now. In the environment that we evolved in, you were born screaming and life was terrible. And so we associate now like, oh, if you were exposed to stress, that's a bad thing. Exposure to stress is the most normal human thing ever. We were born to be stressed out. That's how our whole nervous system was oriented. So when I think about the potential 
influence of childhood unpredictability in the expression of certain genes. It is so important for people to understand that things like childhood unpredictability are not deficits. They are simply contexts for adaptation. And we don't even know what the relevant dimensions are. Other researchers are focusing on different theories for what those environmental factors are. Kazi Rahman told me more. We don't think that family environment has anything whatsoever to do with sexual orientation. And I can be quite strong about that. We have several longitudinal studies where we try to correlate hypothesized social, parental learning explanations for sexual orientation. We don't really find those associations in longitudinal studies where we can tease apart causation. There's some hint that some familial factors are correlated with maybe female sexual orientation, perhaps for the reasons I said earlier, but the signals are very, very weak. So I'm not convinced that standard social explanations are responsible for differences in sexual orientation. The type of environment I think that matters is the prenatal one, prenatal androgens, and that really is my best bet for the proximate cause for differences in sexual orientation. So genetics and then, and then hormonal factors. While some researchers are studying the period after a baby is born, others are focused on the fetal environment before birth, especially the role of androgens, which is a class of hormones that includes testosterone. During early fetal development, the presence and timing of hormone exposure can influence the development of various traits, including how the brain will go from neutral to male or neutral to female. It's hypothesized that variations in the hormone levels and sensitivity to androgens like testosterone during this critical period in the womb can contribute to the development of same-sex attraction. There have been some studies which have explored the relationship between this prenatal hormone exposure and sexual orientation, and they found that those with very elevated androgen levels while in the womb had a higher incidence of same-sex attraction compared to the general population. I'm not the greatest fan of that line of her work. I don't find it very compelling beyond a few very special cases. So that idea is that, you know, we know that in the process of fetal development, after the testes and ovaries develop, they start pumping out hormones. And those hormones sort of take the baton from the gene and they direct development along different channels. And the fetal brain's exposure to androgens and estrogens directs its development. And that is called by some psychologists feminizing or masculinizing brains. And I, I, that terminology just, just makes me kind of sick to my stomach. Do we know for sure that those hormonal effects exist? Yes. Do we know that there are, in fact, anatomical differences between female and male brains? Yes. Do we know whether those same sources of variation are related to sexual orientation? We really don't. It's a great theory. It's like the most sensible theory ever. But the actual empirical evidence for it, after like 25 years of study, I think is shockingly limited. I think that model works much better for rodents and for simpler creatures, and not so much for humans. So, same-sex attraction is vastly complicated, 
as is all sexual attraction. And as Cassie told us early on, there's no consensus. Here's what we do know. Researchers do seem to agree that it's not about parental styles or whether a father was distant or absent. Scientists can confidently say that attraction is an interplay between genes and the environment, and that there are a lot more hypotheses that are being explored to determine exactly how that might work. But one thing is clear, more research needs to be done. Sociologist Robbie Wido told me what work he'd like to see next. I think you could measure sexual behavior with enough data to do it in different places. So let's imagine in the United States we were measuring between the South and the North, or places that had different laws or levels of discrimination. I think you would be able to start to map just how bad very oppressive places and laws are for people. And you'd be able to see it strongly in the genetic data, which I think would be quite compelling. That'd be a strong demonstration of something we call a gene-by-environment interaction. It's this environmental mechanism that's most likely to explain the Darwinian paradox that we've been talking about, why same-sex attraction has evolved. When we talk about the benefits and costs evolutionarily, everyone's talking about reproductive output as the main thing of interest, like how many kids are you going to have? We forget that prior to reproducing, humans need to survive. And perhaps because modern humans don't have the kind of survival threats that we faced in the ancestral period, we kind of think that the main thing for evolutionary costs and benefits is number of offspring. But a much bigger priority for the human species is staying alive through your connections to other humans. Humans do not survive without extreme nurturance. Humans are born developmentally immature. Solid evidence for any of the theories in this field is lacking. And there are many other hypotheses out there. We've only scratched the surface on today's show. But what remains here is the puzzle of a complex trait, which no doubt exists. And the quest to better understand it goes on. I think I've given up on, like, some sort of certainty. I'm 52, you know, so I'm probably going to be banging away at this for another 20, 30 years if I'm lucky. And I don't think that it's reasonable to expect that we're going to figure this out. But what I do think is possible and what I feel really compelled to do is to find a way to communicate more broadly both the existence and inherent value of sexual and gender diversity. Because I feel that even now there are individuals who still struggle so much with like, why I'm not like this and I'm not like that and I don't fit in anywhere. There is nothing more demoralizing than that feeling of exclusion, of not being seen, not being validated. And so I feel like to the extent that scientific research on sexual and gender diversity can give a message, whatever you are, it's fantastic because diversity is the whole point of the species. There is not a single form of sexual diversity that is anything less than an evolutionary success story. And that however you ended up is a win. It's a win for the species. It's a win for you. And none of these things are deficits. None of it is bad. Every single flip of that bird, however your flock moved, is a win 
It is a success story and it is to be celebrated. Robbie, too, thinks that if this research is done right, it has the potential to change the ways that humans view each other and genetics. I want to live in a world where (laughs) there are no racist or discriminatory arguments that are accurate or valid that can be made from genetic data. It just doesn't work like that. And we've lived in this deterministic genetic way of teaching and using arguments to hurt people for a long time. So my larger mission is to figure out how to communicate and how to educate in order to make sure that genetics are not something to be feared and that they're well enough understood to be understood as just another probabilistic component of any behavior. Abby, that was fascinating. Thank you very much for all of that. Now, we've heard that same-sex attraction is a vastly complicated mix of genetics and environment, as we said right at the beginning of this show. Nature and nurture, and probably lots more as well. Tell me what you took away from this uh, reporting. It's that nothing's conclusive, of course. So it's always also always quite interesting to hear where you think it's going. Yeah, I honestly, I came away with more questions than I did answers, which is a sign that something is worth investigating. It's so much more complicated than I thought. And at this conference that I went to, we were just looking at kind of the scientific, the biological factors. We didn't even delve into anthropology or culture or sociological reasons, which play a huge important role as well. And what I really kind of admired about all of the scientists that I spoke with is that they had this curiosity to understand the natural world and to understand themselves. And they came at this with really, really good intentions. And I I think that's kind of one of the beauties of science sometimes is just the quest to understand, not to fix, not to alter, but to understand. Well, Abby, like you, I found this absolutely fascinating as well. So thank you so much for bringing us this story. Thank you, Alec. Our thanks to Lisa Diamond, Robbie Wido, Kazi Rahman, Andrea Ganna, Anna Drago, and all of the other people that Abby spoke to during her reporting. And thank you for listening to Babbage. Babbage is produced by Jason Hoskin with mixing and sound design by Nico Rofast. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist. Is globalization dead, or can free trade be revived? Register now for Economist Impact's Global Trade and Supply Chain Summit on September 19th and 20th in Dubai. You learn how to improve supply chain visibility and resilience, boost trade with emerging markets, and take actions that make trade sustainable. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 30% off with the code PODCAST30. So sign up now at economist.com slash global dash trade dash week. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. 
Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.